Welcome to 42 Answers from Founders for Founders, a podcast series brought to you by Project A Ventures, the operational VC. My name is Rainer Berak, operating partner at Project A, and our guest today is David Notaka. Welcome. Thank you for having me. In this podcast, we talk to great founders and we ask them the same set of questions in the domains that we think matter for building successful companies. And these are tech, growth, people, data, and ESG. David, who are you, what do you do, and why do you do it? I'm multiple things at the same time. I'm a co-founder of Senda, and I'm going to tell you more about, about that. I'm a brother, I'm an uncle, and I'm a passionate cook. And I do what I do because I love it. I love to build new start stuff. I love to spend time with my family and I love to eat. And that's why I need to cook as well. <laughs> Maybe tell us more about Sender. So that is that is the company that you're heading. Um, what is Sender doing and who is your target group? So Sender, technically speaking, and I know it sounds a bit complicated and complex. It's a digital freight folder with a focus on food truck load. To my grandmother, I explained Sender as an Uber for trucks. And our business model is straightforward. On one side of our business model, that's the first target group, we have big shippers. Think about AB InBev or Coca-Cola that need to move freight from point A to point B and need a dedicated truck that only moves their loads from A to B. On the other side of our business model, and that's the second target, we have small trucking companies, which we call carriers, uh, companies that typically have five to 50 trucks and no digital processes. So what we do at Sender is we bring together these AB InBevs, these enterprise shippers with these small trucking companies. And we are not only a marketplace, but we go a step further, which means that we're the contractual partner and a single point of contact to both the AB InBevs and the small trucking companies. And just like Flixbus, we're completely asset light. So we don't own any buses in our uh, trucks in our case, and we don't hire any drivers. But just like Flixbus, we end, we own the end-to-end -end custom experience. And therefore, you develop a lot of software as far as I know. You do more than just being like this piece in the middle, but you look a lot into how you can basically like make life and services for both, uh, for both your parties that you interact with uh, better. Is that correct? Exactly. So we combine software with operations. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell you more about it later. All right. Cool. Thank you for that. Now let's get started. People. If you would start a company today, what would be your first five hires? Easy. Two co-founders, not one. Mm -hmm. It's always going to be three. Uh -huh. a technical lead, maybe CTO, and two hustlers. Okay. And were these the uh, five first hires that you had at Sender? We missed the CTO slash technical lead. But for the rest, we still have the two co-founders and, mm -hmm. and also the two first employees are still with us. Okay. What do you think are the hardest hires of today? Tech colleagues are probably the most tricky talent to... Um, get and to retain. It's a highly competitive market, even though I have to say that over the past few months, the pressure has decreased and it feels like it's a bit easier to both um, hire and uh, retain um, tech em employees. Okay. A lot of people mention tech here. A lot also mention sales, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Let's see how you're on that. Um, 
Employee satisfaction. You hire the people, then you want to keep them happy. Do you measure employee satisfaction? Absolutely. We have weekly ENPS surveys that we do. And if there's one learning I made at Sendless that we should have started earlier, it's an incredibly powerful tool to understand the health of the organization, but also to understand how different teams and leaders perform and where they need support and what are the topics that you need to address heads up. And we always see when compensation becomes a topic because we see the score going down and then we address it and open communication goes up again. Extremely powerful, something that I should have done earlier. Okay. How about employee performance? How do you measure that? Do you measure it? How do you measure it? And what do you do with it? So we have bi-yearly performance review cycles um, where we have multiple dimensions that are structured around business, our values and leadership principles. And mm -hmm. um, everyone gets a review, a score, and also has a one-on-one -on -one or one-to-one -one feedback session at least twice per year where we share the result of the performance review in a personal manner. And it's not just an online survey or output that gets shared with the employees. Also this discussion, understanding where there's room for improvement, but also to recognize where someone extremely important is something that has to happen at least twice a year and in person. And this is what we're doing. Cool. Thank you very much. Do you have a favorite type of org chart? How do you think should an organization be structured? I think there's no solution fits all. And there's also another big learning that I made here at Sender. What I also saw is that every time we double the size of the organization from 20 to 40, from 40 to 80, and then two, 300, 600, and 1,000, you have to fundamentally revise how you set up the org structure. And this is always an extremely painful process. And every time you go through it, you say, this is the last time that I'm going to do it. And then six <laughs> to eight months later, it pops up again. And that's so painful because it's people that you have to manage and expectation, dreams, ambitions. And when you have to change your org setups, that conflicts sometimes with the expectation and dreams that some of the employees have. And that's why it's so painful. But again, next time we double the size, I'm pretty sure we have to revise the strategy. Do you think, it's a side question that's actually not in the list of 42, but I'm curious because I sometimes believe in that. Do you think there is some gain actually in changing the structure itself i mean like that, that that changing an org structure is an end to itself because it keeps the organization on its toes and, and makes you rethink stuff i think agility especially as you grow a company is one of the key success factors and change organization forces the entire organization to be changing and agile and again it's painful people don't like it it's You know, something new comes with uncertainty and then uncertainty means unhappiness. And that's why it's so painful. But you need to be agile because what we saw also in the two, last two years is something that no one expected and you had to change constantly. And if you have this agility, then you can react much faster to changes in the market and the organization is the backbone uh, of a company. And therefore, to keep that agility, reorganization and restructurings are extremely helpful uh, to keep that, that that agility. Yeah. Um, remote first or office first? Standard answer, probably hybrid. But I want to find out why the three days in the office that we have at Senna are extremely important. I believe that employees work for a company mostly because of three reasons. 
One is the mission vision statement and the impact that the company has. But I would say in Berlin or in the startup scene, a lot of tech companies can define that really, really well. The other two dimensions, which are actually more important, is the relationship that someone builds with a team and the manager, and more importantly, the personal relationship. I think this is what keeps people committed, focused, and doesn't allow them to close without problems the computer of one employer one day and open the, uh, the computer of the next and, and, and another employee the following day while sitting at home. So having these personal connections, building these relationships, which for me is, by the way, also one of the most beautiful parts of my job, these, these coffees, chats, these elevator rides, and, and there's random encounters in the office where you talk about fun stuff, also sometimes business stuff is what makes all the difference. And that's why I would like to see the team at least three days in the office while giving the flexibility that we'll all learn to appreciate over the past two years, which is working from home. Tech. Um, we agree that Sender is indeed a tech company, correct? Absolutely, yes. Uh, uh, we, we have a number of investors uh, and uh, NBC, so we're definitely a tech company. But one thing that I'd like to specify, and I think it will help us as we go through the following questions that you have prepared for me, they're different type of tech, tech companies. And it took me some time to realize that. And I would like to tell you what type of tech company we thought we were and what temp tech, type of tech company we realized we, we, we are actually. So if you take two comparables, initially we all thought we were more of a tech company of a, like a Klarna, SaaS company, mm -hmm. where you have mm -hmm. to fundamentally reinvent certain processes, experiences from a customer uh, perspective. And um, this requires a certain organizational setup, a certain product focus and product strategy. We realized that there are also other tech companies out there, such as Amazon. I don't know if you noticed, but I would say over the far past five to 10 years, the user interface, the website of Amazon did not really change a lot. Mm -hmm. What changes everything that happens behind. Passes get to your door fast and faster. So the process, the structure, the technology to allow that, that speed and that offering is what makes Amazon extremely special. And this is where we, uh, as a, as a uh, digital logistics company, identify ourselves a bit better. So I would say we are much more a tech company in the direction of Amazon than in the direction of Klarna. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um... You do have a product team, you do have developers. Is one of them in the lead for the overall process? Both. As currently, we combine product uh, with, uh, between development and operations. So when I look at product, I think there are three different types of ownerships that you could look at. The first was having, having product independent typically under chief product officer. The second one is it combined with engineering on the CTO. And the third approach uh, is combining product with the operations, less development under the functional leader. And in the stage of development that we are right now, we combine the two. So product is part of our operations. Um, a few months ago, we were still having product as part of the engineering organization which led to certain complication. We changed it. I can tell you now we have different type of challenges that we have to face. Uh, but as mentioned earlier, it's always an evolution. And as we grow, as the needs of the organization change, we might 
want to revise also the setup in the future. Okay, that makes a lot of sense in relation to what you also said earlier about your you being more similar to to the Amazons of this world. Um, but in the end, okay, at some point you will have there a list of features, you will have things on the roadmap. Who decides really what's to be developed next? Which function, which role decides that? On a macro level, top level is the management. And we define yearly and quarterly priorities and objectives that we measure. Then we pass on this um, to the teams um, that uh, um, uh, develop uh, a roadmap. And the teams are composed of both product engineering and operation. We have the special teams. And we are currently in the process, in the decision-making process of exactly this. So we just defined what our action plan for 2023 is on a management level. We identified four priorities for the company. Last year was nine, too many. This year we're trying with four. And we associated KPIs, specific targets that we can measure to all of these four priorities. What we've done now is we build teams for each of these priorities that come from different areas of the organization. We have steering committees where we, where I'm out, where we have the next level um, uh, steering these. And out of the steering committees and the exercises these teams uh, come up, we translate that into a product roadmap that I then at the end review and make sure that it's in line with the priorities uh, that we have defined and that we can actually measure then the output of, uh, of our efforts and developments. And that puts you as, as, the, as the founder and CEO very much also puts you very close to the product. Um, and I think this is something that is really visible for Sender. And I think it's one of the success drivers. Um, what's your take on product-led growth? Quite, some say it's a buzzword. Others say it's the holy grail of moving forward. What's your, what's your take? It definitely can work. And it's a strategy that uh, has been successful. But again, there's not only one type of tech company. Coming back to my example of earlier, I think in a Klarna type of company, uh, this is something that works better than in an Amazon type of company. Yeah. What's your take on design? How, how important is design for a sender and in which areas does it have the biggest impact? Um, those are very good uh, questions. As mentioned earlier, we're more like the Amazon type of company. And as you see, design and the user interface and experience is not as important as the algorithm and the processes and the, the brain that is behind the interface. So it's definitely super important, uh, but not as important uh, um, as uh, uh, maybe some other of your portfolio companies. Mm -hmm. um, as you are really like very much a tech company, would you ever outsource or do you even outsource software development? Also here, I think it depends a little bit on the stage you're in. We are now a big company with a thousand employees. And I think that outsourcing part of our engineering development helps us give the organization a bit more flexibility and also manage talent a bit better. There are certain tasks that are a bit more repetitive than others. And also from a talent management and talent retention perspective by outsourcing some part of uh, uh, your development um, you can uh, you can uh, find um, you can benefit from that so we currently have a number of new sharing teams that support us but over a longer period of times and i think that having a team that comes in for three months develops something and goes out is not the right approach having new sharing teams that come in for 
at least 12 months that effectively also feel part of the team and ideally also have an orange wall, uh, let's say, in, in, in the office is, I think, a good solution that can unlock the benefits that I mentioned earlier. The orange wall representing the sender logo, the sender design, which I'm actually looking at at the moment, looking at you. Growth. Um, if we think about the complete funnel, brand, marketing, sales, customer success, you do have all these functions, probably even on both ends of your marketplace. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. But because we are not only a B2B business model, but also a B2B business model that works very much with contracts. Mm -hmm. The number of decision makers that we have on both sides of the marketplaces is rather limited. Uh -huh. If we take the shipper side, I would say that 70% of our revenue is decided by probably 100 to 200 people max. So when it comes to both sales and marketing activities, we have to be much more focused in our efforts and our reach out than maybe more B2C uh, brands uh, that reach out to a much broader audience um, and have a, a, a much more, uh, many more decision makers than, than we do. Mm -hmm. If you look um, at the side of the, um, of the shippers um, and you look at these different functions, is there one in the lead of the overall process? Well, customer success, which for us is both on the shipper and the carrier side, we have a lot of repeat business. Mm -hmm. And that's what allowed us to grow so quickly, taking the shippers and the carriers that we started with and make them bigger. Having carriers acquiring your trucks and drive fast and shippers giving us more and more um, of the load. So um, that um, part that we call slightly differently is definitely probably the one that um, currently has a bigger importance within the company. Yeah. Now, if you have so many different teams or, or functions working uh, along a funnel and sometimes, well, usually there are better times and worse times. And when it gets a little bit rough, it, it, it happens to companies that these different functions start to blame each other for where it went wrong or where it goes wrong. What can you do and how should you approach to avoid them working in silos, but, but try to achieve their success together? Well, the more intuitive answer to this is having the right processes and structures in place to break the silos, but we all know that that doesn't really work. So building a trust relationship across teams is what I think can break these silos. And you build trust relationships by putting people in the same room, discussing also things that go beyond the pure, let's say, area of responsibility, having a coffee, maybe having, maybe sometimes also um, uh, some food together is what I think builds this trust relationship. And that's why It's so important for me that people come to the office and spend that quality time with each other to build a trust relationship. How about incentives? I don't know how much you can share about that, but incentives and, and bonus schemes, um, are these rather within the area of responsibilities or, or would you also build that across so that it, because that's one measure that some companies take in order to avoid the silo thinking. Absolutely. Um, having company-wide targets and measure the success of individual team based also on, um, uh, on, 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 on linked to the, to, the, to the overall company is definitely something that we're doing. But some teams have a stronger 
team comfort, uh, team uh, performance component and some others, a smaller one. Um, uh, depends a little bit what type of role you have. It's more transactional and, and it's more individual. If it's more long-term repetitive, this customer success, then it's more shared and linked to the overall performance of the company. How about brand? How important is brand for you and how do you approach it? For me personally, it's extremely important. You mentioned the orange, uh, that's uh, and our logo. Uh, is our logo and our color are extremely important to us and to our employees and to our key stakeholders as well. But again, the number of stakeholders that we approach is limited um, for our daily business transactions. Of course, in the industry and to acquire the right talent, we have to invest a lot and we invest a lot into brand. But one thing that we probably not do is sponsor football teams, again, because we are a B2B business that focuses on contract business or repetitive business. And therefore, we have to target our decision makers uh, um, more precisely. Marketing channels. And again, related to the B2B and the few accounts question, um, what do you do there? Which channels work for you in marketing? Direct sales bit more traditional okay. than other yeah. um, companies, but logistics is still a people-driven business. And in logistics, um, um, you have to build a trust relationship before you can unlock something bigger. Even to push tech adoption, you need first a trust relationship. So direct sales is the best way. And the best way for, for example, approaching a small trucking company is to say, hey, I have a load for you that fits what you're looking for. And by the way, if you want a payment within three days, instead of waiting the 30 to 40 days that you typically wait in the industry, you can start utilizing our technology. And once you do that, you see that there is a certain convenience factor, probably more competitive prices that we can offer for what you're looking and then hook them. But again, you need to reach out with a value proposition that creates trust and leverage that to develop a longer term relationship. How about uh, like more classic stuff like, uh, I don't know, appearances on events that are specific to your industry or even print in specialized magazines for, I don't know, for uh, magazines for in, for specialists in logistics or so? Is, is that a topic? Um, events, definitely. Uh, even though the past two years didn't really allow for sure. a lot of trade shows, but webinars are things that we're doubling uh -huh. down on right now um, to reach out to the few decision makers that we have and present our view on tricky situations that we're facing or new technologies that uh, we're developing. Okay. Performance marketing, probably not so much like what you do a lot, but but you are a founder, you're a digital founder, so you know about it. Um, some people say performance marketing is dead. What do you think about that? I th again, don't think there is one single answer. Um, I definitely think that the importance of performance marketing has decreased and will probably continue to decrease as there are new ways that better leverage um, the, the new infrastructure and tools that, uh, that we all use. Mm -hmm. Sales. You certainly have salespeople. Um, where do you find good digital savvy salespeople? I would challenge you and ask you, do you absolutely need digital savvy salespeople? Uh -huh. uh, in, in an industry like ours, where you have to build trust, that's not always the case. 
we definitely need good salespeople that structure processes, follow KPIs, measure performance. Uh, but sometimes we're also very happy with um, getting someone that brings logistic experience and wants to mm -hmm. try things differently. However, brings a very good network of people, potentially another 10 or 20 of these few decision makers that we need that we then pair with someone that is more digital and as a team then unlock, uh, let's say, that account and the opportunities. So for us, it's not only about finding digital salespeople, but the right combination of, of both. Data. I bet we could talk an hour about that, but how does data make senders successful? One of our values is around data and uh, it's uh, we trust in data and there's so many opportunities that data unlocks in this industry. And I would like to give you a couple of, of numbers to, 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 to highlight how important uh, data is. Logistics and especially trucking, road freight logistics is a highly fragmented market. 70% of the older trucks that you see in the highway are owned by companies that have fewer than 10 trucks. The top five players, Kuna Nagel, DB Schenke, DSV, and so on, have a combined market share of 5.6%. There's a lot of intransparency, a lot of middlemen. If a truck picks up something, the shipper never knows where the truck is. There's, even though there is maybe GPS, there's so many layers in between that are not connected, which make it extremely intransparent. The last data point I want to share with you is that 23% of all trucks travel empty. Still today, even though we don't have enough truck drivers and there's a massive shortage of supply in our industry. Why? Because information is symmetry. So data can be used in multiple ways. I think the most powerful one that we have is to reduce empty kilometers and therefore mm -hmm. reduce CO2 emissions and address and tackle the problem that I just mentioned about information symmetry. When a truck unloads, we can find a follow-on load that is very close by, that the truck can load instead of traveling back to, I don't know, Italy before finding something that takes them back to south of Italy. Um, so this is definitely one. With also predictive demand, we can also tell a truck, wait a couple of hours. There's 90% 90% probability that there is a load that just fits your way home. Um, don't travel empty. So there's a lot of opportunities that we can do uh, that we can unlock there. Um, uh, um, uh, pricing, for example, is another very interesting uh, point where we can use data uh, in an interesting way. And also to ensure compliance with regulations, driving mm -hmm. times, uh, for example, is something where data can be extremely powerful. And us uh, focusing on data and having data top of mind from day one and investing a lot in our infrastructure allows us to build a competitive advantage in the space. Yeah, I would even go that far. And if you heavily disagree, we will just cut it out of this recording. Um, my view on Sender is, you, in my opinion, you are neither a tech company nor a logistics company. You are um, a tech-enabled data company that happens to solve a logistics problem instead of something else. <laughs> Not sure whether you have time, but if you have the same opinion on companies such as maybe Uber yeah. um, or Amazon, yeah. then I would say I, I would agree with that statement. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, which functional areas within Sender are supported by your data team? Classic is, of course, I mean, you mentioned a few. And in logistics, it's obvious how much of your operations is actually uh, that, about that. Um, how about, I don't know, people, department, product development, etc. cetera. Is, is there anything that is more in or more out? Um, I think that data touches every single dimension. I was just thinking about what is not touched by data. Um, and I think everything is touched by data. But having data that talks to each other is the big challenge that we're facing right now. Um, and making sure that between departments, but also within the departments, talent acquisition with, uh, let's say, the talent uh, planning and budget, uh, we have to make sure that this data is coherent and communicates uh, with each other. But across the company, data is used in every single team and every single department. When you talk to your data team, do you ask them to only ask the specific questions they were asked or do they have freedom or is it even their main job to explore data and find opportunities? I think a lot of companies, including Sender, have not yet really understood the value and the power of data and unlocked the full opportunity. So limiting a data team to just doing what the CEO thinks is the right thing to do is definitely not the right way forward. So we actually encourage people to think entrepreneurial and understand what we can do with data. And we actually had one team that spin off Sender to build a startup within the startup with the mandate of addressing or having also new investors, which they received to tackle exactly the, the topic around data coming from telematic systems that are installed in every modern truck, which goes beyond GPS data, um, it's driving time, it's consumption, it's emission data, it's data whether the truck, the trailer is loaded or not. And there's so much we can do. And this is uh, something that we spin off Sender because we had um, a very good team that was willing to take this up and, and build a company around that. Um, how can you make sure in the company that people do what data recommend? What, what, some, what we see sometimes is clearly the facts, the data say do this, and then people say, yeah, but I have a different gut feeling and they go the other direction. Do you want to avoid that? And, and how can you do that? It depends again on the area, like pricing, what we do is, for example, for spot pricing, day, day trading pricing, it's purely based on an algorithm. Mm -hmm. So there's, and we do mistakes, but we can afford these mistakes. If we price something wrongly, it's a one-time loss, it's fine. When it comes, for example, tenders, long-term contracts, where we fix prices for one, two or three years, what we do is we use the algorithm as basis, but we still have an individual go over uh -huh. it. Just to do my sanity check. This is something that we want to review, challenge, and so on. Because again, here, if we do an, a mistake and it unfortunately still happen, it's extremely costly because you lock in that rate for up to three years. Okay. And this is why it's then in that case a combination of both a human and um, the technology. Mm -hmm. Do you know about your data stack, which tools and infrastructure your data team uses? Um, so we are currently in the process of resetting up everything. Uh, we are migrating into a mic fully microservices setup. So we're working that. The tool that I use most to review the data that's important to me is Looker. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, how is your data team structured? Which roles do you have there? So the data team is first of all under our CTO. 
And we have two teams at the moment, uh, the data platform team and the data engineering team. Okay. And they re I understood that right, uh, because we had a little hiccup in the recording, uh, they report to your CTO. Exactly. Our data um, team reports to our CTO. It, and it's not, and I'm not saying it is the case. Uh, I just, we sometimes have that because the question is often, mm, should it sit with the functional areas that use it most or should it be directly with the top management or with the CEO, for example, on the technical area, all has its advantages, disadvantages. It, there's no danger that it becomes too technical and loses the connection with the actual business requirements. It's definitely a risk and one of the challenges we're facing today. Uh, but coming back to what I said earlier, every phase of the organization requires a slightly different uh, setup. So I'm pretty confident that, especially on the data front, we might see some um, new approaches uh, coming up. Mm -hmm. Last data question, GDPR, is it, a, is it a struggle or is it an opportunity? If you ask me, it's more of a struggle and a pain. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that also within the company, we have uh, people that see this as an opportunity. Um, in our legal team, we actually have our responsible for GDPR, uh, making sure that everything that we do with data is done properly, but we actively decided to take it out from the data team and put it into to the legal team. Environmental, social and governance. Uh, the first question here is usually um, why you did or did not found an ESG company. So probably many people would not think of a company like Sender first as an ESG company, but I would disagree. You you definitely, you are an ESG company, right? I would say absolutely yes. And the ESG side of Sender is mostly still ahead of us because logistics is entering a new phase um, uh, where especially environmental and also the social side is becoming more and more important. Why? Because we are hitting now the point in time where all the commitments that big companies did to reduce CO2 emissions, for example, was one of many examples, hit the logistic departments. Now they have to deliver. Last year it was, or the past few years it was, yes, we would like to do something, but we don't have the budget. Now they actually have the budget because they have to hit the targets and the commitments they, they make. So if you start on the environmental side, um, we're already doing a lot with advanced fuels. That's, for example, um, a fuel called HVO, which put very simply, it's a frying oil that McDonald's uses and then has a second life. You could use that instead of diesel. And that's something that reduces CO2 emissions up to 80%. It's, of course, costs a bit more. 10 to 20%, maybe 30%, depending on the geography, more expensive. and need someone that is willing to pay that premium. Um, and we see that we're able to find more and more shippers that are willing to invest in this and therefore are developing now a competitive advantage to build a marketplace in the background where we attract shippers that need green transport and we have carriers that need a premium on their loads because they execute green transport. And we see it as this on the environmental side as the first step. The next step will be electric truck, which will hit the road next year. They will add a lot of complexity to what you need to operate them. Um, uh, but this is where we definitely see huge opportunity and therefore a new era for, for, for logistics. And maybe an even uh, very simple step. 
um, by by being data and or tech enabled, you you do support um, trucks being more full when they go. So that simply reduces number of kilometers driven. Uh, am I right? Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's the environmental part. How about the social aspect? How could you say what what's the social impact of Sender? There are multiple dimensions, bigger ones, smaller ones. We're putting a lot of effort on diversity and inclusion. So working in logistics, uh, we we have uh, we struggled at the beginning to find the right balance in terms of diversity, and we are very close to 50-50%, over 40% uh, female and 50-something percent male ratio. It was a big effort, a lot of our focus we put on that. We put in place a lot of mental and physical well-being programs. But the one thing that I think I'm the proudest of is uh, the Ukraine relief program uh, that, mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that we initiated. Um, we did hundreds of transports, uh, uh, to move freight to Ukraine from across Europe. Um, we're now also hosting a small school here in our offices that we're looking. And we also gave every single employee the possibility for over five months to support any Ukrainian citizen or everyone affected by the war, also non-Ukrainian citizens, with 250 euros. No question asked. You want to pick up someone at the border and uh, uh, submit an invoice for your fuel. You want to go to the grocery store with someone that is in need. You want to buy something. Um, we have, uh, let's say, offered all of this. And I think it showed me for the first time how impactful and how important for an organization this is. It felt incredible to see how many people participated in these initiatives and it really showed who we really are. And that's why especially um, uh, the initiatives on Ukraine um, is something I'm very proud of. Okay. How about governance? People always say ESG. They always have a clear idea about environment, still a little bit about social governance. Most of mo most are blank. Can you can you say a few words, or can you tell what's what's your take on governance criteria? Yeah, also here multiple dimension. I think um, offering a transparent governance model is a good starting point, and the way we structured our board, both of investors and industry experts, which we added to have, um, uh, let's say, also completely different um, uh, perspective. Um, Establishing a code of conduct, I think, is also an important part of the government, uh, governance side and not only putting it into place, which is the easy part, but making sure you live it and make sure it remains top in mind. Um, I think also in terms of public sparing, um, there is on the governance front a couple of things that we did. Um, we participated in the World Economic Forum and, and, and look for, uh, let's say, um, different type of changes that also go beyond uh, what we do. And finally, on the governance front, for us specifically, we also have a dimension around regulatory compliance that carers have to enforce to ensure that the working standards of special, especially drivers are, uh, let's say, um, in line with regulation. Um, and that's also something where we're doing a lot to ensure that um, the trucks and the drivers that drive for us um, uh, are fully compliant and and, and, and uh, have a fair uh, job. Mm -hmm. um, now, a lot of startups nowadays uh, try to really have a focus on ESG. And um, I'm wondering how that resonates with VCs. Um, 
and you are in this business for quite a while and you talk to a lot of VCs, do you think ESG focus is helping founders getting funding or is it rather seen as a deflection? It's definitely not a deflection. It definitely helps, but I would say there are funds that have a clear mandate on the ESG front and they're much more focused on this. And the discussion is, I would say mostly about it, but 20, 30% of the discussion is about ESG initiatives. For funds that don't have a clear mandate and also did not promise actively with few clear commitments that are measurable um, towards their limited partners, their LPs, it's more of a check a box. Are you doing something? Yes, done, perfect. Let's move on and, and therefore just... A very short part of uh, the discussion is focused on that. Yeah. Do you have an ESG officer or any similar role at Sender? Um, no, but for the green business, um, uh, we have a responsible person that is taking care of developing that area because at the end of the day, it's how much effort do you put in it and It has to stay top in mind. And one thing that worked really well for us is have a, have a team that focuses on these advanced fuels and new business models um, uh, um, uh, that are required, infrastructure and so on, to unlock these opportunities. And we have someone fully responsible for that. And where where is the, the person responsible located in the organization? Who's this person re reporting to? Um, currently to one of my co-founders. Okay, so very high in the organization directly to top management. All right, last three questions. Which is the one podcast all founders should listen to? It's a tricky one. I, as a German founder, I like to listen to Deutsche Startups. Always gives me the biggest um, uh, uh, the most important news. I found... A new one recently, 20 Minutes VC, also very, very interesting and um, also something I would maybe recommend more for uh, the non-German audience. Okay. What are your top two pieces of advice for early stage founders? Hire more senior people than what you think is necessary and that what you think you should pay for. Mm-hmm. The sooner you hire more senior people, I think the better, help you do fewer mistakes. And the second piece of advice is things take significantly longer than what you expect them to take. And so plan that time and also understand that if you decide to commit to an entrepreneurial initiative and start a company, is that it's not something where you go in and out if it doesn't work, it takes significantly longer. and the time commitment of your life is significant, especially the moment you raise money from family and friends. It's most a pain, painful part, but also from VCs, the lock-in is significant and I underestimated that. And the time until things really start working and you see some success is so long. And therefore it's something that um, yeah, founders should, uh, especially early stage founders keep uh, top of mind. Thank you. Last question. Who are the two other founders I can ask these questions and you will make an introduction for me? So I actually have three female founders uh, that I can recommend. The first is my girlfriend, Pauline. She's the founder of Weddy Place. 
Um, and the second one um, are uh, Charlotte and Estelle uh, that uh, recently uh, uh, launched Toppy, a super interesting pay now, uh, buy now, pay later for B2B uh, companies, a very interesting startup. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, David. I wish you all the best for you and for Sender. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening in. We appreciate everybody's interest. If you want to know more about Project A and the stuff we do on the investment and the operational side, just go to projecta.com. And for the podcast, if you want to hear more, subscribe to this podcast, rate it, review it, and of course, share it with all your colleagues, friends, and families. Goodbye, everybody. Hello, podcast listeners. We have some exciting news for you. Our Project A Knowledge Conference is back and happening on October 7th at Kultur Brauerei in Berlin. If you want to get to the heart of the European startup ecosystem and connect with founders, leading investors and digital experts, join us for a whole day of knowledge sharing and networking, where experts from every area of digital operations will share their insights and best practices. This year, we're bringing you an amazing speaker lineup including Christian Hacker, co-founder and CEO at Trey Republic, Lubomila Jordanova, co-founder and CEO at Plan A, and Philip Glockler and Philip Klockner, co-hosts of the Doppelganger Tech Talk podcast. Apply for a free ticket now or purchase one directly from our website, knowledge-conference.project-a.com.